Wait, we're recording. Hey, Kara. Are you sure? We're, okay, we are recording. We hey, are recording. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Chris, so do you want to uh, give the people out there a little information about our speaker today? Yeah, so, so I thought we would talk to Morgan Hoke. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at, oh my gosh, Morgan, I'm sorry. I believe you're at Penn State. I know Morgan, I've known her for a few years. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, she's at the University of Pennsylvania in Philly. She was at Northwestern. I've known her for a few years and am really familiar with her work in Nunoa. And she had a paper come out, um, looks like a couple issues ago. I think it was in November issue mm -hmm. of American Journal of Human Bio, submitted back in November 2016. So I know, I know Morgan's work. I've heard her speak on this work, and I believe this is from her dissertation. But yeah. she also had a piece in Sapiens, a more popular piece. So I thought we'd bring her on to talk about both. Yeah, I'm excited. And I want to ask her what uh, Philadelphia is like right now, considering the Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. <gasps> so exciting. Yeah, that's fine. I don't care about that. I just want the Pats to go down. So yay, Eagles. I want the Pats to go down too. But I also read an article yesterday that people were greasing light poles with Crisco uh, in anticipation of them winning this game. Because apparently people in Philly have a tendency to climb <laughs> lampposts. <laughs> All right. Well, All speaking right, of greased lampposts, <laughs> let me contact Dr. Hoke. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Morgan. Hi. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good. I don't think we've ever actually met. No, I don't think we have. I think we've probably sat at the same table and <laughs> seen each other from afar a couple of times, but never actually talked. <laughs> oh, that's sad, because I think Carol was on my right, Morgan, and you were on my left or something like that at the HBA luncheon. Yeah, I think that you're right. And that was a friend fail. Sorry. No, no, no. No worries. That's okay. That's There's all right. It looks like we uh, both have some interest in brown fat, so that's exciting. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 do find it, I do find it pretty compelling. Um, oh, you have an interest in brown fat. I thought you said we have some interesting brown fat. Well, that's like, also true. How can you yeah. tell from a Zoom call? <laughs> well, because it seems like most adults have it, but we're still learning the variation. Anyway. Indeed. But, uh, anyway, so Morgan, to let you know, we are recording this whole time, but we also edit all this stuff out where we kind of BS. Uh, Unless I say something funny. Yeah, and then we will cut that small piece because it'll only happen maybe once and then insert it somewhere it makes sense. Got it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so welcome, Morgan Hoke. Um, how are you doing today? What is Philly like the day after the Eagles learn they're going to the Super Bowl? Um, it is wild. Um, it's, I think we're still, everybody is still recovering um, as far as I know. Um, I have some colleagues who live down on Broad Street who... No are quite tired this morning um, as festivities sort of raged into the, uh, the early hours of this morning. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I feel really fortunate actually having come to Philly now for this and having been in Chicago um, over the last few years for sort of the, you know, the, the Cubs. And so um, I don't know, I feel lucky, I think. <laughs> That's exciting. Do you, do you know anyone who attempted to climb a greased light pole? I don't know anyone personally. Um, I do. I did have some friends who were out last night, um, you know, engaging in general ruckus and celebration. 
I don't know anyone who tried it, um, but they definitely made it known why, far and wide that all of those poles would be thoroughly greased. Kara, <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm hurt that you didn't ask me about the parade for Alabama Crimson Tide winning its 17th championship in fifth and eight years. That's because it happens all the time, so we've just stopped caring. <laughs> all of us non-SEC people <gasps> just stopped caring. Yeah. And you guys don't grease your light poles, so, you know. Maybe you should try that. Maybe right. that will get you some more press. If you want to get us interested, you got to do something like that. I think we're good on press. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Morgan, uh, I don't think I have any. I'll be leading this one for the most part. Okay. Um, I don't think I have any super hardball questions. They might be weird questions, but it's the parts that I was just like, oh, interesting. Great. Um, but anyway, so Morgan, we're going to talk to you today a little bit about your new paper that recently came out in uh, November uh, on the economic activity and patterns of infant growth in a high altitude district of Peru. And just to start off, um, your introduction and kind of the background of the site is actually really fascinating. And so I was wondering if you could paint a picture of this location and some of the really big changes that seem to have occurred in the past 20, 30 years. Yeah, happily. Um, so Nanyawa is both um, a town and sort of this broader district in this uh, relatively rural part of Peru. Um, it's located um, sort of on one of the major Pan American thoroughfares, about half between Puno and Cusco. So a lot of people who travel through Peru pass right by it and never know that they're passing this world famous tiny little town that no one in Peru has ever heard of. But we here uh, in the world of biological anthropology know uh, quite well. Um, so Peru, it's, or so Nino itself um, is a, a, a town that's growing pretty rapidly. Um, there's a population of about 14,000 people that live there now, um, but as recently as Five years ago, the main road up to Ninoa was still a dirt road. So it made getting to and from Ninoa and the sort of nearby um, larger uh, towns pretty difficult. Um, and this sort of recent paving of the roads made um, sort of the really, really dramatically increased the interconnectedness of Ninoa and the sort of nearby places. And it's um, allowed for basically sort of increased out migration for labor on a daily basis even. Um, so people can actually live in Ninoa and commute out to nearby uh, cities or other areas. And it's also meant that um, sort of goods and available services are, are sort of in greater, um, both greater demand, but also, you know, there's a lot more access to them um, on a sort of, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but uh, Ninoa, as you know, many of you might know, was originally um, was one of the original research study sites for the International Biological Program's Human Adaptability Project. So there was a team of anthropologists that went up there in the 1960s to work um, in, specifically with the goal of studying adaptations to high altitude and cold stress. And so when they went there, this was a really, really small town with basically just a main plaza um, a church and a few uh, a few buildings, um, and a lot of sort of the social life of the town was still um, dependent on these sort of large landowning um, haciendas, um, and so many people were either connected to haciendas and worked on haciendas, or there were some sort of more community oriented, what we think of as more traditional um, kin based groups. I use. Um, and so when people were working in the 1960s, again, their questions were really about adaptation. 
there was some interest in sort of the social life of the place and how people got along, um, how they sort of made their way. Um, but it was, um, it was, you know, a lot of focus on, the, I think, a lot of focus on the biology. And then um, researchers sort of, that initial period of research ended and people came back in the 1980s. Um, and in the 1980s, there had been, um, there had been a, a land reform, an agrarian reform between the 60s and the 80s that basically meant that um, a lot of the population that had been relatively poor now had sort of differential access to land. And so we started to see the emergence of sort of a little bit of socioeconomic differentiation among the indigenous populations that people had been working with in the 60s. Um, and so that meant that there was a little bit more in terms of uh, sort of professional activities going on. The schools were growing. Um, the sort of town center of Nanyoa itself was growing from just a few buildings to sort of an increasingly dense settlement. Um, the roads still weren't paved, so getting in and out was, um, uh, was still pretty difficult. Um, but, uh, but there was sort of a movement, um, a sort of a growth and a centralization happening around the sort of main town of Nanyoa. Um, and you could sort of see the population pulling in from the rural communities outside Nanyoa into sort of being more centralized. And so now, Nanyoa has basically become a, a pretty significant urban center in this area. They have a large health center and they sort of serve um, this broader community, again, of about 14,000 people. About half of those people actually live in the central town of Nanyoa, which is a pretty big change from what we were seeing in the 1980s. And now um, uh, that means that in Nanyoa, now it's not a thriving metropolis, but there are a couple of restaurants which is a big change. So there are a number of businesses, lots of stores. Um, I think, you know, now there are probably on the sort of main square itself, there are four or five different little pharmacies, uh, maybe another four or five shops that sell foods um, and, and, and other items. There are librerias or places where you can buy school supplies. Um, and so it's actually, um, there's quite a bit of, of of sort of accessibility to a number of different kinds of things that just weren't there in the 80s. Um, and really, you know that Ninoa's made it because we, we now have in Ninoa not one, but three pollerias. And pollerias are these restaurants where the sort of famous roast chicken is sold in Peru. Uh -huh. um, and so once you have a polleria, you know you sort of made it. Um, and then, uh, so the fact that Peru has a, that Ninoa now has three of those actually is, uh, is a pretty big deal. We don't have any pizza places yet, but we do have chicken restaurants. Very exciting. And so if you could sum up this study pretty briefly, looking at the different kind of economic zones and the results that you saw in infant growth, uh, give us the, you know, the snapshot of what you found there. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of my interest was in, so basically this, this whole district there is this urban center where people are doing a lot of wage labor. There is this area that's just outside of the urban center that's not too far, where people have started producing a lot of milk um, and doing a lot of dairying in order to produce cheese that's then sold to pizzerias at Cusco just up the road. And so there's this sort of wage labor center, there's this area where people are doing a lot of dairying, uh, and there's the sort of higher and more rural parts of the district where people are doing camelid herding. So that's primarily alpacas for wool and also some llamas. And so um, what, what I did in this study was sort of look at how participating or living in these different economic zones affected infant growth. Um, and I was sort of interested in um, 
complicating our ideas uh, about what the influences of growth in these communities are. So again, for a long time, we've been really focused on high altitude as an influence of growth. And, I, um, and while high altitude certainly plays a role here um, in looking at these sort of three segments of the population, there is sort of an altitude gradient. But um, what I found in my study is that the sort of economic and social side is a lot more important and particularly um, sort of regardless of where you live, if your family, um, uh, and, and this doesn't come out in, in the paper as much, but to, to, to um, uh, sort of uh, let you in on a future paper, um, one of the things that does turn out to be really important is actually the foods that you produce in the household. So if you're growing your own crops, if you're consuming and producing your own milk, if you have your own eggs, that's all really important. Um, but what, uh, what the sort of key findings for this study are that um, we actually see very different growth patterns in each of these different communities. So in the urban center, where kids have access to a lot of processed foods, we're actually seeing, we're still seeing quite a bit of growth stunting. But along with growth stunting, we're seeing slightly larger, and that is to say sort of fatter babies. So we're actually starting to see what, um, what we think of as a risky growth pattern, where babies are getting bigger, but they're not necessarily getting longer. So their linear growth is being compromised. Um, and that's a pattern of growth that's been found by a number of studies to be um, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and, and poor metabolic health later in life. So that's what's going on in the, in the sort of urban sector. In the dairying sector, we're seeing significant improvements and reductions in stunting and sort of not the lack of linear growth that we're seeing in the, urban, in the urban population. So there's sort of something different going on there. And then in the, high, in the sort of high herding section, um, families whose, whose sort of primary activities have to do with herding, we're seeing that there's still pretty high rates of stunting um, and not seeing the same sorts of, of rapid weight gains that we see in the urban population, um, which indicate that they're probably experiencing a, a fair degree of undernutrition, but not experiencing the sort of dual burden of malnutrition, where they're both undernourished and also overnourished. It's fascinating. Um, and so one of the very interesting things that, uh, there's actually a couple of interesting things. One was the gender difference between males and females in your study. And another one was that, um, maternal anthropometry was the same across the three economic zones. And that one kind of blew my mind. Yeah. I didn't expect that. And let's start with that one and wondering kind of what your thoughts are on why you don't see a difference in the mothers uh, in, in between these three different zones. Yeah. So um, that's a great question. And it was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And so I like it because in part it's, it's sort of evidence that, um, um, that the differences we're talking about aren't necessarily, um, they aren't necessarily tied strictly to place um, because these women coming from all of these sorts of different, these different environments theoretically are actually all looking pretty similar. There aren't significant differences between the moms. And so it's really more uh, tied to sort of what's going on in a place at a given time. Right. Yeah, so, so, so let me be like a lag that you're now seeing the children. It didn't yeah. that occur for the mothers growing yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. So Very I think that's part of it. I think that's, that's probably part of it. And I think the other part of it is actually, um, you know, this dairying industry, this sort of, this sort of economic differentiation is actually relatively new, right? It hasn't, it didn't exist in the same way 20 years ago. So when these moms 
again, and they range in age, you know, from some as young as 18 to some as old as 45, I think. Um, the, the, when they were younger, these sort of economic possibilities were different, right? So there wasn't as much, there was still variability, certainly, but there wasn't as much as exists now. So I think part of what we're seeing is these sort of emergent trends, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I, sometimes I think about it as sort of the emergence of, of differences in inequality in a group that for a long time actually looked pretty homogenous throughout these zones. And, and while there was um, sort of variability in terms of who was doing better when, where there were little pockets of economic success, it's often, it's often sort of flip-flopped. But we haven't seen so much variation, as much variation as we're seeing now, which I think is what makes this, um, this pattern possible. Yeah, and, and why we didn't see it in the previous generation. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely fascinating. And uh, to go on to that and, and very quickly, because I have a couple more questions. Um, yeah. Are you planning on going back to measure these children again? Is that the hope so we can see if this pattern persists? Yes, as a matter of fact, I've been working on that follow-up grant. Um, so yeah, I'm actually planning on going back this summer um, to do some research. I will be trying to track down as many of the participants as I can um, to, uh, and they're all between, um, at this point, they're somewhere between four and seven. Um, and so we'll be, we'll be doing anthrop anthropometric measurements on them. So we'll be looking to sort of see if, particularly in the urban kids, if this pattern of um, central adiposity has emerged. So we'll actually be sort of looking to see if they are, they're exhibiting growth stunting, but also how they're depositing fat. Um, and, uh, and we'll also sort of see if the benefits that were um, conferred by sort of dairying early on have persisted. Um, and if any, any of the children who did exhibit, uh, exhibit sort of these growth deficits early on, if they were able to recover any of their de deficits. And so we'll be looking into the factors that you know, might allow for that. Um, and, and then sort of seeing again, yeah, if these changes have persisted. Um, and you know, I've, I've had thoughts, they're all, they're all in school now, um, <laughs> which is great. Um, so there is this possibility of sort of thinking about, um, starting to think about, you know, the, the kinds of sort of human capital consequences that something like these early inputs might have. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure I'm ready to take it there just yet. Well, that's, that's exciting. And that's, that's, uh... I'm really glad you're getting a chance to go back and I can't wait to see what those results are going to uh, show us. And I'd like to get back to the gender difference. So it seems that your results kind of bucked popular belief for quite some time that males are preferentially treated because the females in your sample had a higher uh, height for age Z scores. Mm -hmm. And so there was a suggestion that maybe males are more biologically vulnerable. And the one thing I noticed before I, I let you go and answer is that you also had a lot more males in the sample than you did females. It was almost two to one. Yeah. Uh, and so I was kind of wondering your thoughts on that, not only the ratio skew, but then why females might be doing better than males. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, I think that that's a great question. And I actually think it sort of points to one of, you know, whether it came out in the, in the article or not, probably one of the, the, the things that I find that I've had to grapple with in this study um, is this sort of this sort of skewed sex ratio. And so for a long time, I wondered if, and it's certainly possible if my sample for, for female infants is actually biased towards um, infants who are growing better. Um, and I might, and you might think that based on, so not everybody wants to participate in these kinds of studies, right? And so the question becomes, so who decides to participate? Um, and so that always, in many cases, I think, especially for a study like this, that means that people who are 
more marginalized or more um, concerned or might, you know, might be at more risk for something like gross stunting actually don't necessarily want to participate. Um, particularly, this is true, I think, given the treatment that many of these women experience in the course of their interactions with health center staff in Ninoa, where the children are being regularly monitored um, for growth um, as sort of a part of Peru's national efforts to reduce um, sort of reduce maternal and infant mortality, improve child growth, sort of meeting the Millennium Development Goals, there's a pretty significant and intensive monitoring system. And women experience a, quite a bit of chastisement um, if their wow. kids aren't growing appropriately. And so I think that part of, you know, this really gets into sort of thinking about the context of, that these, this research takes place in, because I think that, you know, there's a strong probability that many women who, who maybe in the past had been told that their child was stunted um, or sort of had these negative experiences with health, with health center staff wouldn't necessarily want to talk to me or participate in the study. So I think that there is a possibility that the, the and, and this might be particularly true for girls. Um, I had thought, I, I spent some time thinking about this just because um, um, there has been this sort of traditional notion of sun preference. Um, not a lot in the Andes. It's not very strong, but it's happened. Um, and so I thought that um, you know, some combination of, of sort of ideas about um, males and male and female children and, and the sort of increased vulnerability um, of certain segments of the population that actually women wouldn't, you know, women with children who might be more stunted wouldn't necessarily want to participate. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I think that's an important part. But I also think that there is something to um, you know, there's a, there are a number of studies that have sort of pointed to slightly more physiological vulnerability in males mm -hmm. early on. And I, you know, I think that that might be, there might be something to that. They might be slightly more sensitive physiologically to these kinds of changes um, or these sort of subtle changes in nutrition. And I, so I think that that's certainly possible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would say that's probably one of the big limitations of the study is actually that. Um, that we did have sort of this, this skewed um, sample. Um, and especially given that actually the girls were growing so much better, that it is certainly possible that this is, um, this is a sort of an, uh, an outcome that directly has to do with the sample that I ended up with, mm -hmm. that's anthropology. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. You get all these artifacts from culture that yeah. kind of, you know, bleed into everything we do. Yeah. Um, but no, this was uh, an excellent study, and I, I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours about all of these things, um, but we do have to keep things into a somewhat shortened time length. Um, but before we wrap up, Chris, do you have any questions that you want to add on to here? Well, I just want to ask one about this, and then I want to give you a few minutes to talk about baby fat. Um, but uh, so one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work in general and thinking about how we are training students and I, and I sense a little student training, uh, in your, your piece, like this is the kind of piece that we write for, that we develop when we're teaching and we realize there's a gap in the literature. Um, and one of the things that talking to you and hearing about your work really got me to thinking about a few years ago was, the importance of working in a site that's got a long history and what you're in the 60th decade of people working at that site. Um, and I think there's a, there are a lot of students who have the mistaken sense that what anthropologists do is go out where no one has ever been and carve something completely novel and unique out um, so they can make it 
say something that's never been said before. Um, I wonder if you could speak to the sort of pros and cons. I can imagine if if it's a small community, there might be some fatigue, but then again, there must be some incredible advantages as well. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, there, it, there definitely are. So, so I think um, for me, Ninoa has been um, a real, a, like a real blessing, a real gift. Um, the people there, I think actually, there isn't a lot of research fatigue. There's just enough curiosity. Um, you know, so people, um, there aren't that many of us that are working there now. Um, and people often sort of remember and talk about that time when all the gringos were here and, oh, I went down to the laboratory and we did this and I did this. And they, you know, they have these wonderful recollections of, of, of sort of participating in these projects, many with sort of many very positively, others sort of less so. Many people had no idea what was going on there. Um, they just knew that there was a bunch of crazy white people who, you know, would take your temperature and make you wear a bag and do all kinds of wild things. <laughs> um, and so for me, I mean, what I think that what that's meant for my research is, is that people want to talk to me. I often find myself sort of being the ambassador of all of the anthropologists who have been in the area for a long time, sort of explaining, you know, all this work that's been done because, and unfortunately, I think this is sort of a product of the time, but a lot of that work didn't make it back. Mm. Um, you know, people have gone back individually, but there isn't really a collective memory around what people found, what they learned with all that work. And so I try to do, you know, a lot of, I think, what my current job is, being in Ninoa, is actually sort of sharing all of that information with people. I try to do radio shows where I talk mm. about the different um, studies that were done in the 1960s and the 1980s and what they learned. Um, I try to sort of make that information available for people. Um, uh, and that is a really important part of having a long-term field site. And then as far as the, you know, sort of research side of it goes, for me and the kinds of things, the kinds of large sort of long, deep time processes I'm interested in, the sort of emergence and development of inequality, it's, 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 a really unique opportunity to be able to work in a place like Ninoa where we have this really detailed picture of sort of what life has been like over the last 60 years and how it's changed and we actually can sort of document the impact of different political um, happenings on the health of this population. Um, and that's been really amazing. And I think, you know, you do always have to contend with the history of the area. Um, I feel like people will forever ask me about high altitude and growth and adaptation. And I'm, I love it and I'm interested in it, of course. Um, but, but you know, my interest in Ninoa is, is, is both in sort of the history of the field and how things unfolded there and also sort of the history of this place and the history of this population, um, which is changing really rapidly. And, and that's, you know, that's more... Um, all that history allows me to sort of see that change and try to understand what that change has meant um, meant for for this population, both in terms of sort of their health and well-being, and in terms of, of sort of this scholarly work that can come from it. So your more personal interest is really fat babies. Mostly, I just love fat babies. I tell people this all the time that honestly, the only reason I, I do this work is so I can play with babies. That's what I spend most of my time doing. <laughs> So what, what the, the, the piece that we, uh, we saw when I reached out to you, I saw it in Sapiens, but it looks like that's been in several places. What, what's that piece about? 
Yeah, so that piece um, is a, basically a piece on, um, on the importance of baby fat beyond the cuteness factor. Um, and so originally the piece was intended to sort of be a biological perspective on fat. Uh, and because I do what I do and I love babies, especially fat ones, it ended up being about baby fat and a little bit about brown fat, which adults have too. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just, uh, it was really an opportunity to sort of talk about um, why fatness matters in babies um, and sort of the myths around baby fat and sort of why we think that fat's important for humans and then sort of bringing up to date, you know, where those myths sort of have come from, what, where they might be real. You know, fat is important for warmth, but not necessarily in the way that we thought. Um, yeah, sort of bring, bringing that, um, bringing those ideas um, into conversation with the actual science that's going on around fat and baby fat. Now, that was a great piece. Uh, you, you put into words thoughts I've been having about baby fat for quite some time and why babies lose weight during those first week or two. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the energetic reasons why. Because, you know, colostrum is actually not all that calorically dense yeah. <laughs> and helpful yeah. to keeping a baby going. Yeah, much more of a medicine than a food, really. Yeah. Yeah, so I was really excited to read that piece. Uh, it was it was wonderful. Um, but anything else, Chris? No. Well, you know, as Kara said, we could chew the fat all day. Oh. Wah, wah, wah. But there uh, no. This is one joke. <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want. <laughs> um, we try to keep these short and, and pithy. So um, I've got nothing else. All right, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about your really fascinating work. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I'll be sure to uh, let you guys know if anything else uh, comes down the pipeline because I'd love to talk with you again sometime. Awesome, we'd love that. Thank you. Yeah, take care. All right, bye. Hey, everybody, this is Chris. Kara is on the road. But I wanted to remind everyone that the 42nd Annual Meeting of the Human Biology Association will take place in delightful Austin, Texas on April 11th and 12th. Our meeting will be held at the JW Marriott Austin with leadership from the equally delightful elected HBA program chair, HBA program chair, Amanda Thompson. And of course, a substantial block of rooms has been reserved for you for this meeting. And to keep the cost of the meetings reasonable, we encourage everyone to stay at the meeting hotel and book early. And plus your a conference experience will just be much more awesome when you're nearby and can hang out. So please book prior to March 22nd. Uh, that's the cutoff date. And the AAP has arranged special conference rates, which you can find information out about on the website. Also on the website, you can order tickets for the Thursday awards luncheon at the 2018 HBA meeting. But get them soon. Prices will increase by $10 after Tuesday, March 20th will be unavailable for purchase after Tuesday, April 3rd, and will not be sold on site. And finally, just a reminder, I am the program chair for the bioanthro section of the AAA. Um, and so if you are thinking about sending in a proposal and you want to know if it's appropriate, feel free to email me at cdlin at ua.edu or hit me up on the Twitter. Chris underscore L-Y. The Sausage of Science is a production of the Publicity Committee of the Human Biology Association. Michaela Howells is our executive chair of the Publicity Committee. The podcast is produced by me, Chris Lynn, and my friend and colleague, Kara Ackerbach. If you have requests or suggestions for future programs, please send them our way. Until next time.
Tchau.